Jesus' peace is a peace that must build and destroy. It must eradicate and it must create. It creates unity, it creates the body, but it also destroys the hostility. Therefore, remember, and what does he say for them to remember? Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh and by, by hands and by in the flesh by hands. So he goes here to this topic of circumcision. And remember, here's what they're to remember. At one time, you were called the uncircumcision by the ones who are called the circumcision. What's that all about? Well, those two words are just to refer to God's covenant people, God's Old Testament covenant people, the Jewish people, and the bodily sign that was the sign on their bodies that God gave them as being people of the covenant or God's chosen people, the Jewish people, the sign of circumcision, which was their bodily outwardly sort of sign that they were the people of God. And he says, well, at one time, those who were called the circumcision called you the uncircumcision. Now, what's important to see here is that what Paul is saying, these two names, or this, this one name by which you were called the uncircumcision, he says, remember, at one time you used to be called the uncircumcision, and you were called that by the ones who were the circumcision. What Paul is calling them to remember is a derogatory, pejorative insult. It was not flattering for them to be called the uncircumcision. This speaks of something in Paul's world that it's helpful for us to remind ourselves about. And that is the fact that Paul lived in a world that was eaten alive by hatred. And we say, well, so do we. We live in the same sort of world. And yes, people are people and hate still exists. It will exist until Jesus returns. But in a different sort of way, Paul's world, Jesus came into a culture and at a time in that culture at which hatred Racial, ethnic hatred was at a fever-pitched high. Now you might say, well, I think we live in that world today. With all due respect, you don't know anything about racism and ethnic hatred if you don't understand Paul's world and the Jewish-Gentile hatred that existed, primarily in one direction, from Jew to Gentile. It was reciprocated, but it was, it was frothy in the direction of going from the Jew to the Gentile. Now, the complicated thing about this is that it all started by God's commands. God commanded that His people were to be separate. They're to separate themselves from the people of the land. And they took that seriously. In some ways, they took it seriously. In other ways, they didn't. But they they kind of took this seriously. And this resulted in this idea that they were God's favorite people. Now, Let me ask this question. Does God have a favorite people? Trick question. Does God have a favorite people? God does not have a favorite people, but God has a favored people. And there's a difference. And the nuance there is very important. God has a favored people, and those are the people that have received His favor. We know Him because He has favored us. The Jewish people were God's favored people, but 
they had begun to think of themselves as God's favorite people. And the difference is, when you think you're God's favorite person, then that's all your identity. That's you. Being God's favorite person means that you know it. That's kind of the difference that, that between the two. Being God's favored person speaks of someone. This is what Paul's been trying to say to us from, from the beginning of the letter. It speaks to us to someone of someone who's, whose eyes have been opened to the incredible grace of God that he would want to know us and that he would favor us with the grace of making us alive to him. That's God's favored people. God's favorite people are, well, there's obviously something about me that God likes. So I'm his favorite. We're his favorite and we know it. You're not his favorite and we know that too. So you see the difference? God's people had begun to think of themselves. I should say God's ethnic people had begun to think of themselves as God's favorite people. And thereby necessarily they thought of everyone else as God's unfavorite people. And they had begun to think of themselves as being God's favorite due to something within themselves. So now you see the connection between by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Therefore, remember that at one time you were hated by those who thought they could boast in what I just talked about. See the connection? So this time in which Paul lived, the time in which Jesus lived, was a time of fever-pitched hatred on the part of the Jewish people toward the Gentile people. There was a prayer that Jewish men would pray every morning. They would get up and they would thank God for three things. They would thank God for life on another day. They would thank God that they were not born a woman. And they would thank God that they were not born a Gentile. That's the mindset. That's the type of animosity. That's the type of lowness that the Gentile was assigned in the mind of the Jewish person. When a Jewish, on those rare occasions, when a Jewish person, person would elope and marry a Gentile, the Jewish family would conduct a funeral for the person because the person was dead to them. Anybody seen Fiddler on the Roof? Or Red Fiddler on the Roof? So you remember that scene where the father... And, and he's pushing the cart and tears rolling down his face and the daughter that, that was going to marry the Gentile and they're crying and the father says, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. You're dead to me. That's this, that's this environment. The Jewish, it was illegal for a Jewish person to assist a Gentile woman giving birth to a child because by so doing, they were helping another Gentile come into the world. That's the type of hatred and animosity that existed in Paul's world. The Pentecost happens, right? The, the, ch the church is born. Remember, there's this big outpouring of the Spirit. And remember, 16 people groups are, are converted right there. And you remember who all 16 people groups were? Jews. They were all Jews. There for the Jewish festival of Pentecost. Ten years after Pentecost, do you know how many Gentile Christians there are? None. Ten years have passed since Jesus goes to heaven, since the Spirit is given, since the church is born. Ten years have passed, and Jesus' command to take this gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then the ends of the earth hadn't gotten there yet. The Ethiopian eunuch, he was a convert to Judaism. 
That's why he was there in the temple worshiping and reading the Isaiah scroll. And so this is, this is the world we can trace. You really have to grasp this to understand what's happening in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is this story of two worlds colliding. The world of the Jew and the world of the Gentile, both of whom have been converted to Christ and they collide. And with them come all these trappings and how the church had to work out these difficult, difficult problems. And we see these Jews following Paul everywhere, disrupting his teaching because they don't believe that the Gentiles should be God's people, that they're not God's people. They believe it's sinful to take this gospel of the Jewish Messiah to Gentiles. It's just a tremendous upheaval in Paul's world. And so the idea of race relations today, maybe race relations between African-Americans and, and uh, whites or, or two, any, any two ethnic groups today, cannot compare. Cannot compare. Maybe race relations in 1840 was something more like that. But you should think more in terms, to understand Paul's world, you should think more in terms of the relationship between a radical Islamic jihadist and a Westerner. That's more akin to the relationship between Jew and Gentile in Paul's day. And so this is what Paul wants them to remember. Remember, remember how hated you were by God's people. Remember how hated you were by God's people. Remember what David said of, of Goliath. Remember that? David comes and there's Goliath shouting all these insults and David's like, what's going on here? And they tell him this man, Goliath. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to say this about the, Lord, the army of the living God? You hear the insult there? This uncircumcised Philistine. Paul says, remember, that's who you were. You were the uncircumcised Philistine. Remember the sheet, the vision of the sheet that comes to Peter, Acts 10? The sheet comes down three times full of unclean animals. Ten years after Jesus has gone back to heaven, Peter still says, nope, I don't, I don't eat that stuff, right? And the vision is all about how he's supposed to go to Cornelius' house because God's now calling the Gentiles into the church, right? When we think of that, when we think of that sheet coming down and the unclean animals, that's who we are. We are the unclean animal. We are the disgusting animal on the, sh- on the sheet that comes down that Peter says, never in my life have I touched that. That's us. And Paul says to the Ephesians, that's you. Remember, that's who you were at one time. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh. Now, so we're going to see this in the flesh three times. So the circumcision is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So, uh, to skip ahead just a little bit, but you are far off. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh. So three times in the flesh, two times he says circumcision in the flesh. You are the uncircumcision by the circumcision in the flesh because they are the circumcision made by the flesh. And then he's going to say, you've been brought near by the one who in the flesh has solved this. So you see the problem is the flesh. 
The problem is the circumcision in the flesh, and it's going to be solved by another flesh. It's going to be solved by Jesus's sacrifice in his flesh. So in the flesh causes the, circum- causes the difference, causes the breakdown, causes the hostility. All that is solved by Jesus in the flesh. So now back to verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, there is a mouthful right there that we could spend a great deal of time dissecting, taking apart Paul's five-fold description of the church corporate prior to the grace of God coming to them. But just suffice to say, the picture that Paul paints here, alienated, you're separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The commonwealth means the citizenship, the people of Israel, the people of God, strangers to the covenant of promise. There's the covenant of promise, in which God promises redemption from His people's sins, but you were strangers to that, having no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that Christ is our hope, but they were separated from Christ. They're separated from their hope, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have gods. They had plenty of gods. They were all false, but they have not the true God. So right here, just to take a little brief moment and say, right there is a missions mandate. Right there is why we are on absolute solid biblical ground when the world around us will say, well, you know, that that people group that lives over there in that different culture, they've got their own beliefs, their own traditions, their own religions. We should leave them alone. Who are we to go and tell them that the way they believe is wrong? I'll tell you who we are. We are the people who stand on the inerrant word of God that says to us, all of those people are without hope and separated from God. And there is no connecting to God outside of what's going to become so abundantly clear in the passage outside of in Christ Jesus. So having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ, you see how everything from verse from chapter one, verse four, Everything is in Christ. The blessings are in Christ. The redemption is in Christ. The choosing is in Christ. The adoption is in Christ. The inheritance is in Christ. All of it is in Christ. Here also, the church is the church because of Christ. In Christ is where the church is located. But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near. So here's this theme of farness and nearness. The ones who are far have been brought near. Now, we have a way of talking here in the church that kind of goes like this, that at certain times of our life, we have a walk with God, a relationship with God that's vibrant and connected and energetic. And we'll call that what? Being close to God. I need like a a Vanna White sort of turn some letters up here. That we call that being close to God, right? But then there's times when we maybe have strayed in our thoughts and our relationship to Christ is not vibrant, not interjected, not, not, interject, not energetic, but disconnected, dis, disjointed. You know what I'm talking about? And we'll call that being far from God. And we're not wrong to use that terminology, but if we want to be biblical, and we do want to be biblical, right? If we want to be biblical, God sees everyone who is in Christ as near, close, Everyone, if you are in Christ, you are close to God in God's way of thinking. So you who are far off have been brought near. How have you been brought near? By the blood of Christ. 
The blood of Christ has brought you near. How has the blood of Christ brought you near? It's important for us to pause here and just remind ourselves of how it is that the blood of Christ brings us near to Christ. Jesus Christ did not have magic blood. I know that sounds provocative, but there is no saving quality to Jesus' blood in and of itself. Jesus didn't have magic blood. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross was bodily fluid. The blood of Jesus saves us not because of something in the blood, but because of what it means, of what it stands for, of, of what the meaning is, because it means His sacrificial death on your behalf. Your perfect li- His perfect life lived for you and then given for you because the blood is the life. And so that blood that flowed, Jesus wasn't spilling a liquid that itself brings salvation because you know what? I'd be willing to bet that some of those Roman centurions who put Jesus on the cross, I'd be willing to bet they got some of Jesus' blood on them and they didn't sort of leap around all converted immediately. There's, if I had a bowl of Jesus' blood right here and I were to say, whoever wants to be saved, come up and dip your hands in Jesus' blood and you came and did so without faith or without repentance, then the only thing you'd do is get your clothes stained because there's nothing salvific about blood. It's about what the blood means. We just sang power in the blood and there's great power in the blood, but not in and of itself. The power is the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. The perfect life that was lived for us and then given for us so that his life commends us to God and his death pays the penalty that's ours. There was once an, a tribe of friendly Indians. Some of you have heard this story, but it's been three years since I told the story, and they taught me in seminary that at three years you can tell a story again. So there was this peaceful Indian tribe. And in this tribe, I mean, they, were, they grew their crops and raised animals, and they were peaceful, didn't fight with anybody. But they were experiencing a great deal of internal strife because it had become evident that among them was a chicken thief. Every day or two, somebody else's chicken would disappear. And this went on for a while, and you can imagine the stress and the interpersonal friction that was happening in the tribe after a week goes by, two, three, a month, a couple of months, and and everybody now has lost several chickens. And they just can't seem to find the chicken thief. So they're beginning to fight among themselves and everything, and, and the unity of the tribe is beginning to kind of break down. So the chief, finally in desperation, has to do something. He's got to do something to stop this because it's tearing his tribe apart. So he makes this radical declaration. He says, just, the only thing I know to do is just make this incredible declaration that's going to get everybody's attention and hopefully put a stop to this. So he declares the chicken thief will be caught. And when they are caught, they will have their shirt stripped off of them. They will be tied to a pole and they will receive 40 lashes onto their bare back with a leather whip. And the tribe just gasped because nobody had ever heard of a punishment like that. I mean, this was a punishment that only the strongest young men could live through. But the chief thought, I've got no other choice. This is what I have to do in order to smoke this chicken thief out. So a night or two passes, and then sure enough, in the middle of the night, some braves come and wake the chief up in the middle of the night to say, we have caught 
the chicken thief, and we've caught the thief red-handed. The chief sort of wakes up, sort of groggy and everything, and gets up, and, and they say, we've, we've, we've got the thief outside. You need to come and see. So the chief sort of gets up and stumbles outside his teepee and goes, walks into the moonlight, and comes face-to-face with his own elderly mother. What is, what is he supposed to do? Everyone in the tribe has heard this person will be caught and this person will be beaten with 40 lashes on their bare back. He can't go back on that. He would have no more respect and the tribe would absolutely break down after that. But he can't just say, well, we won't do this. That would be even worse in a way of speaking. So what's the chief going to do? So the sun comes up. The chief sends out word to gather everybody in the center of the village there and all the people gather up that morning and they, the chief comes out and declares, we have caught the thief and here's the thief. And everybody's watching the chief to see what he's going to do. And sure enough, he commands, strip her shirt off, lash her to the post. They do this. And then the chief says, I want the strongest brave in the village. The strongest young brave comes up. He hands him the whip. And he said, the chief says, no matter what you do under penalty of death, do not go lightly. We don't want to do this again. And the brave, with tears in his eyes, reaches back to make the first blow. And the chief throws off his shirt and wraps himself around his mother. And takes all 40 lashes. That was the only thing he could do. The lashes had to be administered, but his mother could not take them. That's how the blood of Christ brings us near. Our iniquity, Isaiah 62, has made a separation between us and God. That separation must be taken away. And it can only be taken away by death because the wages of sin is death. And so just as the chief sacrifices himself and takes the full punishment for a sin that wasn't his, so also Christ takes our punishment. And that is how his blood draws us near to him. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. You see how peace is a person. Peace is Jesus. Peace isn't a status. It's not an achievement. Peace is a person and it's Jesus Christ who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. So you see how the peace that Jesus brings is a peace that both builds and destroys. It destroys the hostilities. It tears down the hostilities, but it also builds the unity. Jesus's peace is not a type of peace that just says, come on, and and God will kind of overlook these things. Jesus's peace is a peace that must build and destroy. It must eradicate and it must create. It creates unity. It creates the body, but it also destroys the hostility. So how is this hostility or what is this hostility that he has destroyed? He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, this is a clear reference to the wall of the outer court of the temple. So we know we have this temple, in, or we had this temple in Jerusalem, and we know that the temple was divided into different places. There was the temple proper, but then there was the next courtyard out, 
That was the courtyard that the Jewish men could enter. There was the next courtyard out. That was the courtyard that the Jewish women could enter. There was the next courtyard out. And, the next, and finally, the outermost courtyard was the courtyard of the Gentiles. And there was a wall all around on the inside with a sign that was placed above. The sign has been discovered. This is the sign that said, no foreigner may enter under penalty of death. Any foreigner goes beyond this point at risk of your own life. How's that for a welcome sign? How's that for our God wants to know you? Our God wants to be your God. Our God wants to forgive your sins. No. This is a sign that says we're God's favorites. You stay out. You can come here. You can come here. But you stay out of here. Paul says, remember this. Never forget this. Never forget the hatred. Never forget the animosity. Never forget the prejudice. Never forget the separation. Never forget how you were treated by those who thought they were God's favorites, yet they were not God's favored. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.